Hey listeners, welcome to SphereCast, a podcast all about technology, technology advice, technology inspiration, and how real entrepreneurs have used technology to build their businesses from the ground up. If you're wondering how technology can support your business goals, rest assured, our guests have been there and done that. Do you speak the language of numbers? The ability to see figures on a page, make sense of them, and articulate those ideas to others. It's truly a craft, a skill that comes more naturally to some than others, particularly to those of the analytical bent. But whether or not you're inclined in that direction, it's a skill that has to be refined, practiced, and mastered. And for those who put in the work, for those who become more fluent, more often than not, they find themselves at the top of the financial ladder. Hey, Luke here with another week of SphereCast, and this week, as part of our CFO podcast series, Sani and I interview Adrian Gavaglia, Portfolio CFO at MergeOne and Interim CFO at Enterprise Illumini. Throughout his career, Gavaglia has held a variety of high-level finance roles at companies in the London area, including a lengthy stint at HarperCollins. Adrian has extensive experience making sense of digital platforms, navigating mergers and acquisitions, and providing in-depth financial analysis. At the end of the day, Adrian is a master of the numbers. And like any good CFO, Adrian's superpower is reading between the lines of the spreadsheets and asking the right questions, all to discern what's important, what's not, and where companies should be paying special attention. On the podcast, Adrian shares how he finds both what matters and pitches others on his point of view. He also speaks to the attributes of a good financial leader, the nature of luck in business, and much more. So without further ado, here's a conversation with Adrian Gavaglia. everyone, this is Senia with SphereCast. Today, we're thrilled to host Adrian Gavaglia on our CFO podcast series. Hi, Adrian. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Doing well. Thanks for asking. Adrian, you're a successful CFO at Emerge One and Enterprise Alumni. As our listeners know well, we always begin with our guests looking back for us and sharing the experience they feel prepared them for a finance leadership role. What comes to mind for you? I guess the main thing would be obviously I had a I had a professional um, contract where I trained in audit. So from a technical finance point of view, I've obviously had sort of specific training that makes the finance side pretty straightforward. I would guess the leadership side has come really from experience, and I would say mainly from role models and mentors that I've worked with. So I'm, I'm quite lucky in that I happen to have two people who I've worked for who quite who are quite senior and invested quite a, quite a lot of time. And they were also very good leaders in their own right. And I guess learned like watching them do their thing, obviously rubbed off on me. And, you know, you can see, you know, if you're, if you're thinking about you know, progressing in your career and you've got, you've got that in mind, you know, you're always looking at what the attributes are that those people have. And I guess like the, some of the ones that I could see would, would be that would be that they were consistent, were measured, quite thoughtful and quite analytical. And sometimes people, you know, when you say they're analytical, they think you're indecisive, but they were very decisive kind of leaders. I guess other things that have helped in terms of my journey would be you know, my various roles have always been very close to decision making, whether it would be uh, part of a exec, a senior leadership team on the board. And I guess just having experience working with different personalities and different leadership styles kind of rubs off on you. 
and you kind of look at the things that you think work well or don't work well and you try and incorporate them into the way that you go about your sort of um, framework or your sort of way of leading. I want to follow this up quickly. So thanks for sharing that. Um, so you, you touched upon this already. Maybe you can elaborate a little bit. So was there any particular attribute that you thought or you saw, not an attribute, let's say, you know, um, vices of these people that you were working with and you thought, okay, I'll do X, Y, Z, but I wouldn't do this because this clearly isn't working. Were you noticing things that way as well? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, one one thing I think is important in a leader is consistency. I think, you know, I've worked with leaders who are very inconsistent in that. They kind of, people can't tell how they're going to react or what they're going to do. And I, and I always found that very, you know, very difficult. You know, you have to kind of have a method where people can trust you and they can trust the way that you're going to behave. That doesn't mean that you can't be, you know, you can't show passion or you can't change your mind, but you you always have to kind of do it in a way where I feel you're transparent in the way that you came about your, your decision. If people don't really understand why you make one decision or another, they kind of get very, it gets very difficult to be in that environment. So I try to make sure that Whenever I make a decision, it's kind of obvious why I did it. Now, you know, you've got to be careful of having to explain yourself all the time. You don't really want to, you, you know, you just shouldn't have to. And you don't really want to do that. But you kind of just need to make sure that you're not one thing one day and, and uh, another thing another day. Although in the real, in reality, you, you, no one's 100% consistent all the time. But you've just got to be as, as close as you possibly can to having a leader who people people know what, you know, what they're going to get from them. Yeah, I think that's really valuable advice there because um, if the goalpost is changing for the leader all the time and, you know, the organisation, rest of the people are looking at you and you are basically steering them. So if you are not consistent, it can it can make their life difficult. And I think the trust also is, is difficult to, you know, gain trust, I guess. Uh, and uh, exactly, exactly. it's part of the leadership. Um, okay, that's thank you for sharing that. Um, I, I want to quickly switch or pivot to a slightly different mode here. So let's a little bit technical. So Senia mentioned a few positions. There's a lot more positions, you know, in, in the finance, finance leadership role that you have uh, been in. So I'd love to know, um, you know, you, you, you must have been spending a lot of time on analytics, PowerPoint presentations, etc. cetera. Um, so what we'd like to know for our audience is, what is your preparation process for any meeting with, let's say, board members who are going to ask you tough questions? And, you know, we're talking about an audience which might get lost if you give them too much analysis. So how do you extract the the optimum or the highest level of information which you think is worth sharing with them? And that will get your point across as well. I think the first thing is like it depends on whether you're dealing with the board as a collective or you're dealing with the board individually because obviously each member is different but if we take you know say you're dealing with the board I think the most important thing is that you're always observing and listening to what they say so that you kind of understand what's what what their strengths are and how well they can interpret your data so the most important thing is when you're presenting stuff that you're clear that the person who's receiving that data, that they're going to understand it or you're going to present it in a way that they understand. So, you know, for example, 
you know, I've had people on the board who are non-finance. And so if you're gonna if you're gonna green through loads of dense data and not put it in a di- digestible chunk or in layman's terms, they're gonna get lost. So you kind of really have to understand who you're talking to and then figure out how you're gonna present it. Like a lot of the time, I think the most important thing though in board in a board meeting or when you're presenting to the board is that if you are, say, with your CEO or your founders, mm-hmm. that you and them are aligned. I think one of the sort of big hiccups or big things that you get in board meetings or when you get presenting data or presenting information is where you know you present something and then your say CEO or founders kind of don't recognize the data or the information or think it's contrary to what they perceive has been going on. So one of the most important things I always think is to be aligned, to make sure that before you go into a meeting that you guys are all aligned, you know, the senior people are aligned. That that isn't to mean that you can't, you know, can't challenge something else because obviously there has to be a, a degree of commercial tension between a CEO and CFO. But, you know, you don't want to be pulling out surprises where people in, people in the room are looking at each other, looking at you going, well, why aren't, you know, why is your CEO looking at you as if what you've presented is something that doesn't exist? In terms of like what I think is really important is also trying to second guess if you get asked to do a specific piece of analysis. So, you know, in the past, I've been asked, well, can you do a bit of cohort analysis on your sales um, vertical and explain where you are, right? I always try to second guess what the second and third question is, because when you present data, it's always very clear that people will read it and they'll have questions. And I always try to think, well, if I get given this data, what questions am I going to be asked? Now, sometimes I'll actually do further analysis and present it in a dashboard or KPI pack, or I'll just keep it in the back of my mind so I know what the answer to that is. And when I get asked a question, I'm make sure I have the I have the information I kind of think is really important that you, you when you're presenting stuff you're proactive in thinking what feedback or what questions you're going to be asked right if you sit there and just present the data and then haven't thought through what it is you're presenting and then somebody actually ask you a load of questions that are difficult because you haven't thought about it then you know that is going to look good for you so I tend to kind of think you know what what is it that if i present this if i present this dashboard with these graphs or with these or with this information what else is somebody going to ask me about it and then obviously like i said the really important is to tailor it to the audience so you know i once did a presentation about the financial data of the publishing division that i was working with at harper collins i was the only finance person and everyone was editorial marketing and sales so you know, the narrative was more important than the actual data, you know, because I'm working with people who aren't finance people. What's really important is that I spell out the narrative to them in a way that they can understand, you know, the graphs and stuff. They're great. They're going to look at them. But what they really need is for me to talk them through it in a way that they understand, which is simple layman's terms, no no complicated language. So you really need to think about when you're presenting data, who you're presenting to. Sometimes you get various different people with different backgrounds in a meeting and you have to weigh up how, you know, how technical you're going to be or how dense you're going to be versus someone who's not going to quite get it. In some of those instances, I'm actually just, you know, kind of, spoken to a board person either before or after the meeting and kind of just sat them down and kind of given them a you know a sort of more 
easy view of what was going on if I know that they're not, say, you know, very numbers orientated, but they really want want to know what's going on. So, you know, the key points would be to think about what what else you're going to be asked, what other questions you can have. So be proactive and then just always try and tailor it to your audience. And in terms of presenting, I always think less is better than more, but always be prepared to have the more in the back of your pocket if you need to. I think that's very wise words from you. So thanks for sharing that. I don't even know what I can add there. (laughs) You've covered literally everything there. So thanks for the details there. I think perhaps we could, you know, segue into an example of a situation, let's say. So, um, I mean, I see this, I've seen this problem a couple of times. I work for a sales team as well. So there have been situations where, let's give an example. So one, uh, our CFO or corporate finance manager just joined recently a few months ago and he started you know looking at the uh, crm data etc and then next thing that came up was okay you guys are not looking at something and and he brought those numbers up and as a as a team we we've had like we had no emphasis on that particular number let's say sales velocity for, for example right so yeah. He brought that to the table. So I'm sure you've run into much more complicated situations in the past. So I'd love if you could share an example where, you know, you've uh, kind of ran into a situation where people are not seeing something, not seeing the potential of a number, and you, you, you have to basically go and sell it to them and raise the profile of that particular KPI or a dashboard or something, you know, something like that. Oh, oh! I mean, I've had quite a few. I mean, actually, I've had I had one recently in a in a one of the startups that I was working, where you know the sales, everyone was looking at the top line of the sales, and the sales were growing. Um, but the way the industry was made up, it you know a lot a lot of the volume was concentrated in the hands of two or three big players, but a lot of the more lucrative sales were outside of those two or three big players, because it was a scaler the focus was on the top line and no one was really looking at what was going on actually in the detail of who, you know, who actually are your clients and the clients that they had were predominantly those big three clients. So they had basically a lot of their business in the hands of only one or two clients, which is always a risk um, when your business and they kind of hadn't concentrated on the other more lucrative air verticals of the, of um, that were out there and the other problem with it was that the resource that was being sucked away from that other those other verticals to support that business was way more than should have been necessary so you know i had to kind of you know instead of looking and focusing just on the top line of sales break it down into the verticals and then break it down into showing the sort of the profit margins and how the growth was happening over time so you know the correlation was these two clients are growing and growing and growing and growing that's the only real growth in the business there's no growth in the other more lucrative clients even though they're smaller the com- if if you get the combination of having lots of them gets you more mar- more margin and makes your business more broad you know that wasn't being seen uh because 
individuals were just purely focused on their personal gain, which was their bonus, their, their bonus scheme. And they weren't really looking at what was in, you know, what was really more important for the business is yes, to grow fast, but to grow in a measured fashion and ensure that the clients that you're growing are sustainable, but also, you know, are the prof- profitable ones and where your business wants to go. So that's one that I've had recently. And then another one that I've had was actually, is actually more to do on the cost side where, you know, we're winning business and the business is, you know, very successful in winning business. But the way that the costs are analysed in the PL is very inconsistent. So when you go from one client to another, you don't have a uniform way of saying, well, what is the actual margin on that business? Because different things are going into different places. And so, you know, currently, you know, one of the clients that I'm working with is trying to find a consistent way to ensure that the costs are consistent across each client so we can actually compare them. So we can actually see if, you know, the the cost that is to acquire that client and then maintain that client is actually worthwhile. Because at the moment, you can't. So while... You know, you can't to the level that I would like to do. So at the moment, you know, you're 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 looking at your top line and going, yeah, that's great. You're looking at your cost of sales, not so great, but you can't really tell why or which customers it is that you're not basically doing as well as you should be. So yeah, one of the thing big things that I think is really also is always important is making sure you can get the right granularity and the right the right um, reporting on data to tell you how your business is actually performing. So Adrian, thanks for sharing that. That was quite broad and and a good example. I want to understand something from you. So uh, let's say that an organization is relatively small and is turning over, let's say, 10, 15 million a year in terms of the revenue. And they have 15 to 20 clients, a couple of salespeople. So they're very efficient. I've never been able to get my head around this you know, what, what data can you actually look at when the actual data is so small and everything is out there in the open? How can you extract value and do something financially with that to improve at that point? Like, I, I just can't understand the scope of that. So can you can you help us a little bit there, maybe? Well, I mean, you know, the first thing you should always be looking at in your revenues where is where your revenue streams are coming from. And you should be looking at what sectors you're in and comparing it to the market. So, you know, one thing that's really important to me is you should always be looking to better yourself. So if you have competitors or if you have uh, parallel businesses, you should always be looking at what you're doing and comparing it. But the first thing, basic thing is make sure you categorize your revenue into the correct different areas and the different verticals. The second one is then you, you want to compare the performance between those, whether it's you know, on a top line, whether it's cost of sales, whether it's the resource that you're required to um, look after them. So, you know, I've got a couple of technology businesses, right? And they're service businesses. So when you deal with service businesses, there's a tendency to think that everything is, you know, just a cost of technology, but there are a lot of people costs and assigning those people costs mm-hmm. to what to say a client or what they're actually doing is important because if you're not, if you don't have a way to assign the costs to the to the sales, how how are you going to evaluate what's going on? Mm-hmm. So you know there always has to be. You always have to have a. In my mind, you always need to be figuring out like you know what 
you know, what cost relates to that business and how do you do it? You know, you talked about the scenario of having two salespeople, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things that I find, you know, that is important when you're looking at sales is like, if you've got a sales team, how are you incentivizing them? You know, are there incentives in line with what your what the business's goals are? Because sometimes they're not. So, for example, you know, the reason why it's important to look at margin is I've been in businesses where, you know, people are selling things at way lower than they should be because there are no parameters around what they, you know, how they can sell. You know, do they have a margin that they have to work to? Do they have certain parameters in terms of what they can and can't give a client? So those things are important because I've worked in a business where I had two teams one team was dealing with bigger clients and one team was dealing with smaller clients. The team dealing with bigger clients always looked like they were doing really well because mm-hmm. the clients are big and they deliver big revenue. But the team that's dealing with smaller clients has lower revenue, but was always outperforming its forecast and always you know, getting 25, 30% more than what they should have been doing. But because the absolute value wasn't as much as the bigger clients, they kind of got treated as if they weren't that important. And, you know, I could see that that team was actually doing so much better than people had given them credit for. Now, I kind of basically had to say to the, you know, to the CEO and the um, other founder at the time, I said, the way you're incentivizing people and the way you're making people feel about sales is incorrect because these guys are your best performers but they're being made to feel like they're the worst performers because the incentivization scheme is around volume which they can never get so it's really important in my mind to always understand like when you've got a sales team because you talked about sales team is to understand how their sales work and how they're incentivized because i've seen so many easy sales targets that one person you know, gets lucky and makes uh, lots of money and other people who their sales incentivization is so onerous, but they're actually doing a stupendous job and they get demoralized and that's not good for you. So yeah, I'm not sure if that answered your question, but. No, it did. It, did. it, 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 it kind of, you know, um, has made me think about a lot of other things that I could be looking at, but I, I just, I'll, I'll I think you, you pointed out in the example. beginning. Mm-hmm. I'll give you a specific example. If your client is, say, um, Barclays Bank, right? right? And then one team is dealing with Barclays Bank, and then the other team is dealing with just a small local bank. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the number, the, the absolute number is always going to look bigger in Barclays Bank because it's Worldwide Bank. But the local number is going to look small in comparison. But if that person is constantly, you know, beating their target all the time, that has to be recognised because maybe they did deserve a bigger, a bigger account. Maybe they, they, you know, they deserve to be remunerated or more. And things like that are really important because some people might have an easy ride simply by the accounts that they've been that they've been given. I agree. I agree. So, and also, I think that there's a lot of um, there's, there's 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 a very good point around it. Also, gives you a chance to understand the potential in the market. Like, if you were selling a product at a, at a low margin. You're not really comparing yourself to the competition, so so th- there is many areas which you can pick up and improve. So just by se- seeing your business in good shape, I think is not enough sometimes, and it's it's about you know strategically where your organization is going and how the different products are performing or services are performing. So um, 
and how you compare with the competition as well. So there's, there's a lot of things, I think. So yeah, th- thanks for sharing that. That, that really, um, that was helpful. And I just, you know, I just came up with that question. So, so I, I just had to ask you because since uh, we were going in that direction. So thank you for that. Um, Senia, over to you for the next part. Thank you. I have another question that comes to mind. I'm curious to find out, Adrian, whether you have um, an established FP&A team or do you have people that are maybe part-time and switching multiple hats? Have you ever played a role um, or a part in establishing an FP&A structure in your organization? So at the mo- at the moment, I'm doing I'm I'm doing most most of the stuff myself. But um, for enterprise alumni, that's that's basically you know my remit is to build out the finance department as we scale. So obviously that's that's in the back that's the in the back of my mind. My my background has always been commercial, so it's always been FP&A driven. Um, so obviously when I started at car phone warehouse, the role that I was given was completely brand new, and it was basically a commercial role that looked at financial planning and analysis of the of the trading team, um, which is basically the team that put the proposition together and bought the stock. So I kind of built that team from one people to four um, in the space of about a year. So, you know, that was really good. I mean, I have to say, Carf, you know, Carphone Warehouse was one of the most commercial and, probably, and one of the best businesses for me personally to have to have gained my experience because it was really fast paced, really entrepreneurial and really clever in a lot of the stuff that they did in terms of sales and marketing. I then also kind of, you know, had a role in HarperCollins where again, I built up the, um, the finance, uh, the finance team, predominantly the commercial team, FP&A team, but it was, it's not just the building of the team, but it's also the processes and the, and the board packs and, and the things and the monthly packs and the numbers and what you review. So, you know, I, I tend to think that building a team is one thing, but building the, the framework for what they do is also important in terms of, you know, timelines, you know, delivery and what you present. Um, so more recently, obviously, in the startups that I've done, I've, I've, you know, one of the challenges that I've actually had is, is that in a lot of early stage startups, you get the FP&A being done by the founders so you know the founders may have may have put together a forecast and they may have used that to bring money in so they can be very wedded to that and handing that over to finance can be difficult and can be a challenge because that's how they manage cash that's how they manage that's how they manage sales but the reality is you know when a business starts scaling up it cannot have that function sitting outside of finance because their finance brings the realism and the accuracy to that. And obviously founders and CEOs, they have other things to do that they couldn't possibly be able to do it as well um, in their day job. So yeah, I guess there's, I guess I've had experience of building FPNA in corporate teams and then having the challenge of say taking FPNA away from say the founder spreadsheet that they that they kept when they started the business back in their bedroom to well now this business is taking in you know multiple funding now we kind of need to have a more professionalized more rigorous um, sort of FPNA function with more regularity um, and I guess that you know that's really that's really important in to embed that into business um, and to embed those you know processes as soon as possible particularly where you have a board that wants to review financials. 
you and Luke spoke prior to the recording of this episode, and Adrian, you shared an interesting point, and it was the power of collaboration. Can you share with our listeners why, from a CFO's perspective, of course, it has become important to harness and foster productive collaboration with both internal and external stakeholders, or perhaps what tools can be used to improve this? I think the thing with that people don't realize sometimes with the CFO is that the CFO basically sees everything in an organization because they have the numbers and of and because they report they they basically can visualize those numbers to visualize what's going on and if you've got a very commercial and strategic CFO they you know they become very good at seeing what the problems are and what the successes are in a business and how to improve them and make things better and i think the collaboration piece is comes from the fact that because the finance, the head of finance, the CFO can see that they're in a unique position to bring people together because, you know, they hand out budgets, they deal, they normally deal what have a one-on-one relationship with most departments, whether it's marketing, sales, HR, finance, tech, because they're in that unique position. I think, you know, if you look at if you look at specifically organizations, what happens in, in, in say, early stage businesses in their life cycle is you get businesses where when they scale up, you know, they can sometimes be siloed and fragmented. And maybe even the founder's vision doesn't quite resonate as it did before. And where that becomes important to have a good CFO is that the CFO can basically help to focus the founder's vision again by looking at stuff such as delegation and communication, which is the key to collaboration. So, you know, it's really important. It's really important because, you know, CFOs, they're used to delegating. They're used to having teams. They're used to giving responsibility through to their teams. And they can lead by example, by showing, showing other departments how to do it. And, you know, if they're really good communicators, they're also very good at communicating and breaking down silos and bringing people together. And one of the things that you get I find, you know, quite often in businesses, particularly ones that where, you know, they might something might be going have gone wrong or they had success and they kind of now um, need to are not in the same position and need to see, you know, need to change something. That you know, the, the CFO is very good at being impartial and very good at bringing people together to work together because they can see the different areas, and that you know, it really helps that a lot of you know, professional accountants or accountants with a professional um, uh, qualification are tend to be very commercial and very strategic and they tend to be very good at placing things together and understanding what needs to be done. And, you know, for me, that makes them very good leaders in, in collaborating. And, you know, the, the other thing that, you know, when I say collaboration, that doesn't mean that you that they don't challenge. Part of collaboration is getting feedback and critical analysis. And I think, you know, a, a good CFO is able to bring everyone to the table, get them talking, get them following an agenda, following a path, but also, you know, helping to, 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 to give the feedback and drive where a business is going. So, you know, in my, in my experience, I've had one CFO who came into a business and literally from the day he walked in he changed everything about the business he made it more data orientated he made it more you know more commercially focused he made he changed the conversation that was being having in the exec from being 
you know, a little bit more, how do I say, about each each person's personal achievements to say the company's achievements by making people focus on the bigger picture. So, yeah, I do think that the CFO is a unique position. And I think that unique position is from the lens that, you know, a lot of people don't really see it or don't really understand that the CFO kind of sees everything. And it's, you know, they kind of, from a, from a set of accounts or a set of management information, the CFO sees more than just the numbers. He sees the wills of a business and he sees how it's moving and, and, and um, you know, moving along. I completely agree. I've worked in multiple organizations and um, I agree. CFO role is very unique and key in any organization. Um, what advice or what's one thing you wish you had known when you began your career as a CFO? Um, I guess what, I mean, one thing's a personal thing. Uh, you know, I tend to be someone who likes to feel like I know everything. And sometimes that's that's a positive and sometimes that's a negative. On the negative, it, you know, it's always made me feel when I entered into a situation where I hadn't encountered it before, felt, you know, a little bit like, oh, I'm, I'm, I might not be able to do this or I might get it wrong. And I guess what I've realised is it's not the CFO's job to know everything. Um, their job is to actually lead and make sure that they put the processes or have the thought about how to get the how to get the information to do that. So rather than focus on you know you know having absolute knowledge, what's more important is having the skill set to be able to you know drive your team to get to the right answer or to be able to do it. So I think you know one thing that I know now is I don't need to know everything. And you know if I don't know it know it now, there's different ways of being able to you know, find information, get information, get someone in your team to do it. And I, you know, that's probably the biggest thing on a personal level. On a more sort of general level, I think the thing that I that I didn't realise until um, now is that some people are sometimes in, in finance because they think that that's their key skill is you're good at numbers, but actually just because you've gone down the route of finance doesn't mean that that's the be all and end all of all your skills. So, you know, for example, for me, I, I you know, I'm very much like the commercial side. I, I like understanding how a business operates and the numbers for me are, are only, they're the, they're the, they open the door. And I guess what I've realized is that I really just utilize, use the numbers to get my foot through the door in understanding how a business works and how it operates and how to drive it forward. So that's just a more, you know, it's always good to understand what is actually motivating or what's actually the thing that really drives you. And it's not necessarily all doing a great set of accounts for me. What's more of the driver of my personality is like, you know, driving success in a business and being feeling that that's something that I'm part of that success. I uh, I hear you on that one exactly. Numbers shouldn't be you know be all and end all of um, of what you're doing. So it's it's just a gateway to to uh, finding out what what is going on and then building from there or rectifying and then building towards the strategic goals is 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 what's at the core of this position where you are now. So I appreciate that. Um, I will ask you another question, um, a little technical, and I think then we'll switch gears a little bit towards, you know, a bit more personal uh, part. So, Adrian, can you share with us your experience of using data and, let's say, some new data technologies 
yeah. in driving a business? Yeah, I mean, I you know, I would I would say I, I'm, I like data and I like to manipulate data, data. So I'm always curious about you know what systems and stuff businesses are using. When I you know in my first role at Carphone, we predominantly used business objects, and we had our we had a sort of I wouldn't say bespoke accounting system. We just had an accounting system that were very few businesses used. And while business objects was good, there were what became clear is that there was a real division between the reporting team and the finance team. Um, so yeah, in, in that scenario, you know, the business objects never agreed to the accounts, which which was really odd, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, I've always been very wary of pure reporting tools that aren't driven by the same data that's going into the accounts. Right. Um, and I think, you know, for me, for me, one really thing that I always, when I, whenever I go into, say, a system integration or system change, I'm always looking for one version of the truth and trying to ensure that whatever reporting tool we have or use, that, that the data that they're getting is as close as possible to the data that goes into the accounts. So, you know, for example, when I moved on to HarperCollins and Harlequin, again, HarperCollins used business objects and Cognos, and they all, you know, did their own thing. They agreed to the accounts in the main, but then Harlequin used Tableau, and Tableau was very different to anything else that I'd used previously because it was very visual. Right. Um, and you know, what was interesting is that we also had a data team at the time at HarperCollins. And they they hadn't really pushed any of these sort of data um, tools onto the business until we acquired this business, Harlequin. And we were like, well, hold on, how come Harlequin has this really good sort of reporting tool called Tableau and we, we're still using Cognos and business objects? Now, I really like Tableau from a business uh, visualization perspective. Right. Um, I think it's I think it's really good in visualizing data. However, you know, what was clear there was back to what I was saying is they were using data um, from directly out of, say, uh, the point of sale systems. And that wasn't necessarily the same data that was going into the accounts. So you'd get to month end and there'd be, well, this is the number that we had been reporting for the month, but this is the number that's gone into the accounts and they disagree. So, you know, I try as much as possible wherever I'm involved in any sort of you know, change of system, upgrade of system, that we get to one version of the truth. More recently, I've upgraded the financial software. So gone from, say, zero to to dynamics. And in that process, um, you know, decided that we would use Power BI. Right. Um, And again, Power BI is a really good tool. It's really good because it's obviously Microsoft and it works really well with Excel. And from a data manipulation point of view, it's really good. Uh, it's not quite as good, I would I would say, as Tableau in terms of visualizing data, but yeah, I th- those two systems I've worked I've worked with, and I, I've, you know, they've each got their positives. I think Tableau's better, as I said, visualization. I think I think Power BI is better to manipulate, and and the fact that it comes as almost as from the same data that you're getting a lot of the time from Dynamics is actually you know makes it easier to ensure consistency of data. But yeah, I mean, I'm I, if I'm being honest, I feel like most most um, systems that that analyze data, 
they kind of do a lot of the same things, but actually the more important thing, and this is why, you know, you get more and more finance involvement in data is I've seen where, you know, the data team is separate to the finance team and the data just contradict each other. I read one of your comments that really stuck out to me and it was on LinkedIn. Um, it went something like better to be lucky than smart. Can you tell us more about what that means? Yeah. I mean, like I said in the beginning, I've had one or two mentors that really invested some time with me. And one of the, you know, the first mentor that I had is like, is my manager at Carphone, and he was an incredibly smart guy, really, really smart. And um, you know, we just had a, you know, we had a conversation once over coffee, and you know, he kind of said to me, "The smartest people don't always get to the top." And at the time, I was a bit kind of don't say that because. That's kind of demotivating. And then I didn't think much of it. And then I had another mentor who spent, you know, he invested quite a lot of time with me. And, you know, he used to take take me out to lunch. And, you know, he was very, you know, very much trying to, you know, uh, build my sort of softer side, softer skills. And he said to me, you know, relationships are really, really important because the reality is that most successful people it's luck plays a huge part in their success you know you don't you don't see just smart people uh being successful all the time that's not the key the you know the key is that for some for whatever reason you marry up hard work intelligence with an awfully huge slice of luck and i think you can see that you can see that around you know in the world we're in right you know, there are a lot of people who happen to be in, you know, businesses that grew at the right time and they had, they were there at the beginning and they, they had shares. And so they've made loads of money and then they're associated with that success. But how much do they actually have an involvement with it? Whereas you get a lot of smart people who might be in another business that wasn't as successful, but actually they did, you know, they, they did a huge amount but because the perception of success is to be a unicorn or a listed business or, you know, to be a big brand, they're not seen as being successful. So I guess the point is, is, you know, while I do agree to a certain um, extent that you make your own luck by, you know, being a hard worker, being, having good relationships with people and, you know, just having integrity, I think, to say that just you just have to you know if you're smart that gives you a guarantee of success no i think you know you can be you can be smart and you can be unsuccessful i think successful people there's a huge amount of luck right place right time you know there's a there's a lot of you know a lot of things going on other than just being smart basically i very much agree i think yeah a lot of things have to you know the, like they say stars have to be aligned for things to happen so you know, there's a lot of things in action which we may not see. We, and and this is one of the reasons, Adrian. I think you know when I, um, I I'm I'm not a big fan of uh, these books that people are writing nowadays. A lot of pop culture books, seven ways to do something, twelve rules to something, and they are being. Some of these authors are just looking back at the steps they took to become to get from point A to point B, which you know, B might be very successful or something, but, you know, quite often I don't see the, the luck factor or, or things that happened that were not in their control, which pointed them towards this path of success. And, and I, I feel like, you know, that it's not the full story. 
we're not seeing everything and it and I see that a lot of people you know a lot of younger generation are being misled into this I, I might be being a bit biased or generalizing things here but I see that um I see this behavior nowadays that people expect that everything should be like I need to have the roadmap to do something you know one two three and I'm there and and they get frustrated very quickly and and there's a lot of you know uh, mental health issues on the rise i think um this is not i mean that's entirely, this is not entirely the reason for it but i see that there's there's less of this you know uh everything is is kind of being very you know seen as a mechanical process which may not be you know the full story yeah i mean that's like really, i mean obviously i worked in publishing right so so from my perspective, I published quite a lot of, when I say I published, I was in, you know, the divisions that I worked with were non-fiction right. divisions, right? So I worked in a lot. And I, I can tell you for a fact that what you said is 75% accurate. I mean, a lot of what go a lot of what goes on is about the narrative of those books. It's about sales and marketing positioning them. The fact of the matter is if you take, if you take probably someone like Steve Jobs, you know, you see people saying they they who want to sort of parallel their management style or their leadership style with him but he's a unique character and it doesn't mean that he got to where he got to by that side you know he that, well, that wearing blue of, jeans and black t-shirt every day you know for example. yeah exactly <laughs> yeah it's, it's i think the thing i think the thing is i think the thing is you can you can sit there and think everything is has a has a rule book and a playbook yeah but then that doesn't really make sense because the world constantly evolves and constantly changes. Yeah. There's so many things that we don't understand despite all this technology and despite, you know, all the money that we invest, that things are more, much more fluid. There isn't, there isn't, unfortunately, there isn't a yes or no answer to certain things like, you know, building the net or setting up the next unicorn business. It's not, you know, there isn't, there isn't a, there isn't a rule book that you can follow that guarantees that that's going to happen. And that's why life is actually so exciting and so good because yeah. there are, there are pitfalls and there are, there are, you know, ups and downs. And that's what, you know, that, that's what, that's what living is about. Right. And that's, you know, that's part, if you look at any successful person, I mean, you know, whether it's Richard Branson or whatever, or these big, you know, these big entrepreneurs, you, you can see a lot of them have had failure before they've had success and you know the statistic that i that i always read is the older you are the more likely an entrepreneur is to succeed mm -hmm. because they've had you know whether it's they've had more life experience or they failed at stuff um so yeah i mean i don't think you can i don't think you can basically suddenly say oh i'm going to follow a rule book and that's gonna that's that, that's gonna eliminate 20 years of experience and get you know shortcut me to where i want to be yeah but you know sometimes with luck you can get your shortcut as well <laughs> exactly but I, I guess that's what i'm saying is it's more likely it's going to be luck you just land in the right place at yeah. and the right place at the right time that gets you there it takes a lot of effort to to get into that position though and that that's that's what we're all doing i guess so okay <laughs> right we we are short of time so i'll i'll let Sini handle the next part quickly and then we can you know. awesome so i have two more questions left for you adrian we're almost done torturing you i want to give a chance for our audience to learn about a typical day in the cfo's life could you describe for us a typical day for you for, for you yeah, I mean, most of my days actually don't have a huge amount of routine. So, you know, a lot of the time, 
it revolves around a one-to-one relationship with say the founder or the CEO. So at the moment, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the conversations I have, I have say in a typical day will be about things going on in the business and about how we can, how we can involve the business. So for example, it might be, it might be, we're talking about refinancing um, and you were talking about, you know, what, what we can do now, what we can do in the, f- on the future. Um, sometimes there might be, there might be more to it where, you know, I actually have some, I actually do, you know, the financial model, but more, it's more about discussing options. What can we do? Uh, you know, another, another thing that's typically, you know, comes up a lot is about strategic planning and a lot of like, well, because the businesses I'm in, just to be clear, at the moment, are sort of more scale-up type businesses are, you know, okay, we're here, but if we continue on the trajectory that we're on now, what do we need in three, six, 12 months, two years' time in order to continue on that growth and embed that growth? So a lot of the time, you know, it can be stuff that's actually like, well, do we have the right people? You know, and it can be looking at the indivi- looking at individuals or just looking at holistically, like, what do we need? you know, have we got the right, have we got the right infrastructure in place? So a lot of the conversations at the moment in my, in my day, there'll be, there'll be, there's quite a lot of reactionary stuff. So there'll be stuff where, you know, something unexpected happened and, you know, I kind of need to figure out how to resolve it or how to take it forward. You know, at the moment I've got a role as well where the business is predominantly in the U.S., so I'm having to juggle a lot of my time working with the US and kind of arranging my time with the, U- with the US. So a lot of the time, the first part of my day is actually, you know, thinking about planning about meetings that I'm going to have in the afternoon in the US when, you know, the, the US wakes up. So, yeah, I mean, that the, the, the typical day is a mixture of, say, doing things in terms of like, you know, some FP&A you know, liaising with bank, you know, with, with bankers or liaising with finances, uh, liaising with board members, and then the other part of the day is is like dealing with like operational staff, um, CEOs, founders, uh, board members, and kind of dealing with dealing with things that are operational day to day. But at the moment, if I'm being honest, the bulk of my time is actually more you know strategic planning. What, how do we take the business forward in the next? Uh, sort of three to 24 months and what do we need you know looking at looking at runway looking at where we want to where we want to grow you know whether that's markets clients and what type you know what type of infrastructure but more specifically people do we need in the business Adrian if you were able to go back in time 10 years what would you tell yourself about leadership that you didn't know then um I think the first thing uh, that, um, that I would say is a, a leader doesn't have to know everything. I think when I was younger, I felt I had to know everything. You know, your leader has to be able to answer every single question. They have to be able to, you know, be the person who knows. And I think that is clearly not the case. Um, I think the second one would be patience. I think... Mm-hmm there's sometimes a tendency when when you want to be a leader or you want to get to the top that you get there as soon as possible or you get there or you want to get there with a certain milestone right and i think i've come to realize that everyone has their own path um and they take their their own time when where they get to where they establish the skills that make them that make them a good leader so i would say you know in terms of leadership don't don't feel feel that you know you 
you have to get to where you need to get to to some preordained time you know it will you would develop the skills and you would get the skills in your own time for your own experiences i guess the other thing i would i would think about and i think is really important is about team i think you're only a good leader realizes that they're only as good as their team and that their success an important element of their success is their team so you know where where sometimes when you're younger you can be a bit more individualistic and look at yourself when you start to move through the hierarchy of an organization you realize how important team is so i would say you know as a leader leadership doesn't doesn't really isn't really just about the individual it's actually about the wider team and the wider organization and you know you very much as a leader you influence the culture of the business and what's around you so yeah you know that old sort of saying is you know you lead by example i think is really true and so you know one of the things that i would say to myself is always try to act in the way that you want others to act because if you don't and you and then you expect them to suddenly do as you say not as i do that's never really going to happen so i guess yeah it's 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 that thing of you know be patient take your time don't feel you need to know everything know everything that isn't what a leader is and think about your team yeah those are kind of things that i would that i would tell myself Amazing. Which leads me to my next question and the final question of this episode. Um, we're at our final part here, and this is where our questions get tricky. So, Adrian, in your point of view, what are the most important attributes of successful financial leaders today? Um, I guess I think the first one is you've got you've got to be you've got to be a considered and measured character. I think you a good financial leader doesn't doesn't react but they're analytical and decisive. So they're good at listening and they're good at taking information in and they're good at digesting it um, to, make, to make decisions. I think the best sort of financial leaders are quite transparent in the way they operate. You know, they, they make sure that information is available and they make sure that information is timely and they make sure that what information is presented is correct to the audience you know specifically in terms of financial leaders it's you know one of the key things you always get with finance is it's sometimes it's some people's cup of tea and sometimes it's not people's cup or cup of tea and particularly in sort of founder-led businesses you normally find one founder is, is quite good with the finances and one isn't i think one of the key skills of a um, a finance leader in those scenarios is to make sure that not just the finance orientated leader, or even if they're both not finance or they're both fine finance oriented, that they always make sure that that other person is on board and they can explain things in layman's terms. So, you know, being able to communicate and deal with people with different levels of ability, I think is really important. So that's communication. And, I think the most important thing for any leader is influencing. At the end of the day, most people who are in sort of senior roles and particularly C-suite roles, they're there because they want to influence. They're there because they want a seat at the table and they want to, you know, to take a business forward and, and influence that direction. And I guess 
you know, that for me is the most important thing is, is your ability to influence. And I think all the other attributes basically funnel to that attribute that allow you to influence, you know, by being a good communicator, being able um, to delegate, being able to be transparent and pr produce um, information that people believe in, um, you know, trust is really important as well right so if people trust you if they see you're consistent going back to what we said at the beginning if they if they see that you that you know you have no agenda you know and that you act with integrity it makes it easier to influence um people and i guess you know one of the other things that i think is really important in this day and age is i think you know gone are the days where you can be you know really cold hard leader um and that the finance person can be just that sort of the computer says no um you could there is no budget yeah. you know there has to be a bit of empathy and a bit of juggling from the finance person from the finance team they need to know you know they need to, they need to know when they have to try and work with the business to make something to make something happen right they can't always be no that you know there will be instances where they have to say no right and we all we've all been there but you know they need to be sort of emotionally aware of how to well what are the right things and when is the right time to to support the business to drive it forward you know and be you know maybe a bit more um, agile than they would have been in the past thanks for sharing that um so adrian we have indeed come to the end of the episode um, I didn't know how we've, you know, gone from zero to 60 minutes there in such a short time. It feels like 10, 15 minutes only. I hope you have enjoyed this as well, but I think it was a, it, it's going to be a great opportunity for anyone aspiring to be not just a financial leader, any kind of leader in any organization or anyone wanting to progress in an organization. I think that this episode is, is, is shining a lot of light on, on, on subjects, you know, that, matter a lot uh, as a person as a professional so thanks for sharing all the wisdom adrian we're really uh, thankful and happy that you spoke with us brilliant thank you i look forward to listening to it but um i'm one of those people who hates the way i sound when i hear it played <laughs> back to me so you sound really good apparently <laughs> but i feel the same like you said yeah i don't like to listen back to my episodes as well but i do it you know with uh, it's, it cringes me, but I still have to listen to it. So it's uh, part of. Uh, you got you got a voice for you got a voice for for podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> I, I hope so. <laughs> a special thanks to our podcast guests this week, and once again to our sponsor Sphere Partners for bringing this episode to life. If you enjoyed this episode, drop SphereCast a five star review on iTunes and share this content with your network. For any relevant links or notes from this episode check out our podcast website at www.sphereinc.com forward slash spherecast. And always remember, when you think you can't, technology can. See you next time.